0: Gemar chatimah everyone, gemar tov, shana tova. So there's a story told about a husband who is increasingly worried about his wife's deafness. And somewhere along the way, he reads that there's a way to test it, you know, kind of a do it at your home kind of screening. What you do is that you stand at the other end of the room with her back to you, and you ask a question. And you get progressively closer each time you don't hear a response and the score is based upon how close you have to get so anyway his wife is standing in the kitchen and she's making dinner and he's standing at the far end of the kitchen and he says what's for dinner there's no answer takes a couple of steps closer and asks again what's for dinner and there's no answer and this goes on for three or four more times until he is literally standing behind her and he says What's for dinner? And she says to him, I've told you five times, it's chicken. Now, you know that a part of what Judaism looks to achieve is to assure that God hears us. But the other part that Judaism looks to achieve is that we can hear God, to know what God is because knowing what someone is and who someone is is not the same thing. The who goes like this. When someone asks me, or I'm sure you, to tell, us, to tell them about ourselves, I automatically list off a bullet point of things. I was born here, schooled there, graduated here, married there, lived here, vacationed there. Who I am basically is what you read on a 23andMe report. But none of that that says anything about what you are. And let me show you what I mean. There's an election coming up, and you have three people to vote for. Allow me to say that any likeness this may bear to actual living people is entirely accidental. Candidate number one is partially paralyzed. He has hypertension. He's anemic and suffers from an array of illnesses. In addition to all of that, He likes to lie to suit his purposes. He consults astrologers. He cheats on his wife, chain smokes, and is an alcoholic. Candidate number two is severely overweight. He's lost every election he's run in. He suffers from depression. He has suffered at least two heart attacks. He is, by all reports, someone who drinks himself through the entire night. And then before going to bed, he takes two sleeping pills. Candidate number three is a highly decorated war hero. By all accounts, he treats women with respect, loves animals, never smokes, seldom drinks, and is a strict vegetarian. Who would you vote for? Well, candidate number one and two sound like a collective mess of a human being, and you'd have good reason to reject them outright. Candidate number three sounds like a genuine hero, a lover of men, women, and children well-groomed, polite, and humane to the point where he won't even bear human suffering. So what more could you ask for? So who would you vote for? You wanna know who these people really are? Candidate number one is Franklin Roosevelt, the only four-term American president who rescued the country, not only from the Great Depression, but Europe from Nazi tyranny. Candidate number two is Winston Churchill, who in the dark early moments of the Second World War, refused to negotiate a surrender to the Nazis, when defeat seemed all but certain, he stared it down. And our heroic candidate number three, that would be Adolf Hitler. What Roosevelt and Churchill, both wealthy and elite, what they had in common was far deeper than the bullet points of their lives. They were people who suffered deeply in ways that fundamentally altered what they were. Roosevelt was paralyzed with adult polio. Churchill was dogged by clinical depression all of his life. And Herr Hitler, the biggest problem he had was being a broken, rejected artist before he decided to become a genocidal maniac. So what are we? A hint to our answer is found in this morning in a well-known but little understood prayer called the Vidoi, or the confessional. It is the moment you'll know in the prayer service, and remember this is the only time of the year that it is done on Yom Kippur and no other day of the Jewish year when we all stand slightly hunched, we take our right hands and we tap our hearts. We do this as we recite a very long list of the ways that humans manage to destroy their lives. And if you look carefully at this list, you'll realize something that's surprising. It is all written in the plural, in the we, for the sins we committed of dishonesty, for the sins we committed of mistrust, for the sins we committed of greed. There's no I in this or me. It's all in the plural, and Jewish tradition tells us why. Because you might say, you know what, this year maybe I lied, but I wasn't greedy. Or you might say, you know what? This year, I misled some people, but I wasn't larcenous So why should I repent for something I didn't do? This morning, in Yom Kippur, the lesson is laid at our feet, that we are all broken creatures, albeit in different ways. We got there because maybe we had a bad parent, or we had an illness, or we struggled in school, or it's been hard for us to make a living. We're broken because we suffered the death of someone whose passing was unimaginable to us. We are broken because this is what life does. It wears and howls at the patina of life, and if we are brave enough and honest enough to look, you can see what it shows, loss and heartache. And if you can stare a little bit longer, you'll see something else, courage and determination. You know, scientists discovered that there's a large trunk of neural pathways that lead directly from your heart to your brain. In the ancient world, we are told of people who died of a broken heart. And now we know that it is, in fact, possible. Just like the brain, the heart can clearly choose to die because it takes courage and strength to live. And Yom Kippur teaches us, reminds us of the harshness to which life's beauty is carried. Now, Judaism takes great pain to remind us that life should be a joyful thing and that we should look for the inspiration and beauty and not in the squalor and pain. And yet the words of the Talmudic sage, Rabbi Yochanan, makes it abundantly clear to us that the human eye, he said, has a white part and a dark part, but you can only see through the dark part because material progress and security do not make us stronger or wiser or deeper people. Comfort and ease don't make us happier. Technological advancements and wealth don't make us feel safer or more hopeful in the future. The process of becoming human is that we see life as something we have to, in the words of the poet Frost, life is something you have to go through and not go over. It requires thought and examination, not distraction. Or avoidance. Because of that, Yom Kippur reminds us that life will be painful and there will be suffering. We will be broken and it will break us. We will be hopeful and yet we will make mistakes. Some of us will suffer inhuman losses. There will be moments when you think back to something you did or didn't do. Something you said or should not have said, leaving you seared with regret and pain because in life there's no going back. Or maybe it is a memory of being in a doctor's office when you or someone you love got very bad news. Maybe it is the moment when you had to pack up the home or the room of someone you love. Those kinds of moments remind me of the story of Antek Zuckerman. When the Second World War broke out, Antek Zuckerman was 18 years old, and he went into the underground supporting Jewish resistance. He was living in Poland, and given his blue eyes and blonde hair, he was chosen to frequently sneak out of the ghetto for supplies and weapons. The last time he went out was a few days before Passover. The Germans then initiated the complete liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto, which ignited the uprising. Zuckerman tried to get back in, but he couldn't, and he was forced to watch from the outside of the walls, along with the legions of non-Jewish Poles, for whom it was a spectator event to see what was taking place for the battle for the Warsaw Ghetto. And he stood there, and there was nothing he could do. And when he was finally able to make his way back into the ghetto through a sewer pipe, it was too late. It was a ghost town. Tormented with survivor's guilt, he was bitter, drunken, and angry. And when interviewed later, years later, and asked to describe himself in those years, he said, If you had licked my heart, you would have tasted poison. And yet Zuckerman would survive the war, empty the bottle, go to Israel, fight there for the founding of the state. And he is most famously known as defiantly standing as the leading witness in the Eichmann trial. That's what he was. So what are we? Some of that will depend on how you face this day. Are you gonna count the hours and minutes and seconds until you can eat and drink? Will you think of an email or a phone call you have to make? You know, there's a reality to life, but it's not the reality that reality shows show us. Funny it is, I think, how very little reality there actually is in a reality TV show. It's produced and scripted and directed with the only intention not to present reality to you, but to get as much attention for the people in the show as possible. But real is different. Because in real, what happens to you has no script. Often far from the eyes of many people, if at all, the deeper story of your reality is visible only to you. And because of that, only you will know what you have become. And when that call, that moment, That challenge or that pain comes your way, what kind of person will you be that answers it? Today is meant to teach you that. You know that the Hebrew word for repentance is well known as being the word tshuva. Most of us believe that we repent because it is a return to God, but Israel's first chief rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook believed that it's not God that we repent to. It is not God that we want to go back to, but it actually is to our better selves, to the person I know that I can be. So as a child, I used to read stories of the ancient rabbis, of the power and effect they had of the great Jewish communities in the Sephardic lands and the European communities, of how people would travel much distance to ask a question or hear some guidance of the rabbi. But our time is very different. And if any of those powers were ever true, they've now been replaced by only one, the power to keep people in a room, which isn't a trivial thing. Because after all, the service can't continue until I stop talking. But we also both know that this moment isn't ready to end. We need to, st- we need to stay in this room. Because here there is pain of the self-inflicted, but also because it is yiskor, of the inflicted. Because I was right when I said this morning in saying that who I am is not what I am. Who can be a person who has lost a great many things? Who can be a person with a broken heart? But what I am is what I decide to do with those broken pieces. I remember reading years ago, in fact, actually, as I think back, it was a trip I took to Yad Vashem with my wife, Lisa. I remember reading there the testimony of a man named Max Webb. I never forgot it. Webb, who was actually born, born as Weisbrot, was born and raised in Lodz. And walking home from school one day, from high school, he saw German army vehicles pulling up in front of a Jewish hospital. He stopped, and before he was able to find another route, he saw the Nazi soldiers throwing the babies against the walls before throwing them out of the windows into the back of waiting trucks. He didn't believe what he was seeing, but he knew it was real. So Max ran home and sat his mother down. He told her what he had seen, and they ready to leave. And before stepping out of the apartment and seeing his mother for the last time, he told her, If I survive this, I will make sure that this is not forgotten. In Auschwitz, he would see the guards yell at the Jews, who will live and who will die, taunting them with the solemn words that we say on this day. He would learn the Nazi plans to build a museum of the Jews filled with the religious items stolen to commemorate the, extin- uh, the extinction of the Jews. He would survive face-to-face selections with Mengele in the death march of 1944, and when the chance to fulfill the promise to his dead mother came, he and his wife moved to California, and Max would become a real estate developer there, a man of great wealth. But I dare you to walk around Los Angeles, Jerusalem, or Tel Aviv, and not see his and his wife's name on many, many buildings, and specifically synagogues, Jewish schools, places of Torah and learning, institutions where rabbis are trained, because Max's promise was to make sure that this was not forgotten. Not the horror of the Nazis, but the beauty of our faith. Not the genocide, but our genius. Max later said, if they thought by killing our children that they would put an end to us, I would devote my life to making sure that they would be wrong. I think of that often in my life. And I want you to as well. Because the greatest Jewish traditions is not to remember how people died, but to remember how they lived, to use their lives to inspire us, to find their strength in making ours. Because as we here know all too well, blessings and tears are often mixed, which means that faith can coexist with tragedy. It can survive it. Carry both with us. And this makes us what we are.